Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to your malt mates at Cry Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation. Beer is a Conversation is our weekly sit-down with some of the people who make the beer industry the interesting and dynamic thing that it is. And through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the business of beer and brewing. And that is exactly what we are doing today, with a very deep dive into the industry and the stories behind it as we chat with Doug Donnellan, who recently retired from his role as CEO at New Zealand Hops. After a varied career that included falling in love with homebrew, Doug got his start as an apprentice brewer under Chuck Hahn at the original Hahn Brewery in 1990. He saw the triumphs, learned a lot, and also saw the challenges that saw the brewery eventually go into receivership before being purchased by Tui's. Deciding to stay on, Doug worked in product development roles before being tapped on the shoulder to rejoin Chuck as Chuck launched what we now know as the James Squire brand at the Malt Shovel Brewery. He worked there in the early days of Australia's craft brewery renaissance before spending the last 13 years as head of New Zealand Hops. In a similar vein to our chats with Jamie Cook and Phil Sexton, this is a wide-ranging chat that looks at the modern evolution of beer and the rise of craft brewing, as well as the development of the New Zealand hop industry. It is a fascinating chat and one that could have gone on and on. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Doug Donnellan, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Uh, thanks, Matt. It's good to catch up with you. Yeah, Matt, look, just to give the listeners a, a bit of a, a, a background to this chat, we caught up at uh, BrewCon um, back in September, and it was just after Jamie Cook had announced his uh, stepping back from the Stone and Wood business uh, to coincide with his 60th birthday. And as, as we were chatting, uh, you'd sort of commented that you'd heard that, and uh, there are certain parallels between uh, you and Jamie. Uh, in fact, you and Jamie have your birthday on the on the same day. You both turned sixty, and for your sixtieth birthday, you announced that you were uh, stepping back from your role as uh, at New Zealand Hops. Yeah, that's correct. I um I turned sixty on the 9th of August, the same as Jamie, um, which is a bit of a laugh, really. And then um. Yeah, I I got to the end of August and coming into September, and um, I was at Brucon where we Brucon was pretty much my last official sort of outing, or as a representative of New Zealand Hops, I've stepped aside as the uh, chief executive and had had officially finished up on the thirtieth of August. So um, after I'd been I'd been at the helm there for um, twelve and a half years. And and before that, had a fairly extensive brewing career. So we we might go back and talk a little bit about how, how did you first come to be in the brewing industry? Um, I've had a fairly um, checkered um, uh, career, I, I would say. I've, there's been lots of things that I've been involved in and I've done. Um, even before I left school, I was working pretty much full time um, for McDonald's of all of all people, um, but. Uh, I, I think probably from a brewing perspective, um, my brother Matt um, turned up at our family home with a Cooper's work kit back in about 1976, I guess. Um, and uh, it was a matter of um, he and I cutting the corner off a plastic bag and a bag in box and tipping some yeast into it. And um, 
and putting the box aside and letting it ferment for a week or whatever the period was and then bottling it off and, and um, so started into home mm. brewing. Prior to that, um, we had sort of goofed around a little bit. I was, I'd made some um, fruit wines, fermentation, um, baking and all that sort of yeast had always been a, um, quite a fascination for me when I was growing up. And I guess um, beer, probably more more importantly, it was something that um, I liked um, from the very first moment I tasted it, which I was probably only about 10 or 11 maybe. Um, I can't really remember. But um, I do know that um, when there were, whenever there were celebrations, there wasn't a lot of beer around in my house as a kid growing up, but at celebrations and things, there'd always be beer around and you know, you'd either sneak a taste of some or an uncle would give you a glass for a taste of it. And, you know, I just I, I just liked it. I really liked it immediately. And um, it's always sort of a real fascination for me. So started home brewing um, back back in the, um, the 70s. And uh, we were um, big on, we were, even at that point, we were big on um, not necessarily locally brewed beer as much as um, if we could get our hands onto any imported beer. So, if 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 a bottle shop was stocking something like Tuborg or Carlsberg Elephant Beer or anything like that, it was always something a little bit special that we would turn up. So, it was always just um, something that um, I've always had an interest in and, and a real passion for. But I guess you know a lot of us start with uh, you know, an interest in beer, um, in, in in the drinking of it. But you went from even doing the the, the very early homebrew uh, in, into a brewing profession. What was you know, and and that was before the craft beer movement. It was before um, you know that there were a lot of breweries that gave you the option to start brewing. What was your progression from you know being a uh, you know, a, a beer drinking student to uh, being a professional brewer my brother and i traveled in the u.s back in um 1986 and we knew that when we were going to go there we were going to one of the things was that we were going to look for beer to drink because we you know it was part of um what we were into we hadn't really realized what we we're going to find when we got there and um I, I always told people the big turning point for me was um arriving in san francisco and um and tasting um anchor liberty for the first time and it sort of it was one of those moments where the light bulb came on and, and I've, I've just really thought wow this is this is really something different than anything I've um, tried before and and the fact that it was coming from what was a relatively small brewery um, and it sort of sparked some interest um, and then we traveled around we we visited um, the very beginnings of the Sierra Nevada brewery in, in Chico and we Chico became our base for a while while we were in the States and we traveled up into Portland and Oregon and we got out of the East Coast and Samuel Adams was starting up in um, over in the New England area and we, we traveled around and came back from the States after a, a fairly extended trip and um, both my brother and I were thinking, you know, um, It'd be really cool if we could get into brewing somehow, um, but how do you do it? Was uh, was the thing because it was fairly um, it was new and nobody was really doing it um, so much at that time. Um, the Lord Nelson in Sydney was sort of um, ticking along, and um, Shara's uh, little brewery in Picton um, was around, and we sort of became part of, I guess, a push 
in in Sydney at the time. The Eastern Suburbs um, Homebrew Club was a, was a, a centre of sort of um, you know I, I guess we were the forerunners to what the beer geeks are um, today. But um, to get in, we had to we had to have some sort of a qualification. So both my brother and I went back to school. We took we went to Sydney Technical College and did food science. Um, during that process, uh, we had already we had continued to homebrew all the way through, um, and there were some really good beers around coming through at that time. You know, Redback had come out of Matilda Bay. Um, probably the benchmark beer for me at that time was uh, Matilda Bay Pills. Um, they were one of the first um, guys to actually start using. Will tell you that they were using German hops, um, Halatel hops. We we really didn't have much in the way of any hops available to us as home brewers at that point. You know, we were trying to work with part of Ringwood and um, Cluster if we could get it. And and so all of a sudden, more exotic um, materials became available to us, uh, uh, full mash malting, uh, full uh, mash brewing and, and buying imported hops and being able to try and so we're trying to produce beer, going to technical college, um, learning about the process, um, hanging out with brewers. Um, the, the Pump House Brewery was operating um, in Sydney at the time as well, and you could go down there and do brewery tours and hang out and talk to people about beer. And we ran the homebrew competitions. And eventually we came out. Um, my brother got a job with um, the Hard Brewing Company in Camperdown. Um, I'd was away doing some volunteer work. So what year would that have been roughly? Because I think Chuck started that around about 1988. So that was around 90, 1990. Yep. So, um, yeah, it was around 1991, that, that period. I was I was away and uh, I came back and I didn't know what I was going to do. And my brother had already been working at Hahn and um, he came home one day and said, um, if you want a job at, at the brewery, come down. Um, there's a job going for an assistant brewer. And um, I turned up and um, I just started what was, in effect, um, an apprenticeship, I guess. And, and, and also at that time, I was um, 30. Um, I, I had, um, you know, we had studied as mature age students. And so um, came what, into it. What did you do before? What, what was your first job out of school? What were you doing while you were discovering this love of brew and studying the food science? <laughs> My very first job out of school was I was an apprentice chef, um, and I sort of progressed from food. Um, I became a I, be, I got into um, beverage service, um, restaurants, hotel management. Um, you know, I I was a cellarman. Um, I was, uh, you know, I worked at rock and roll venues. I drove taxis. I worked on the railways for a bit. Um, I kicked around, but doing a lot of different stuff. You know, for all of it, food probably still is my number one passion. Um, I really, I, I'm, I'm really a food tragic. So um, I do all the cooking at home and um, I make just about everything we eat at home um, from scratch. It, it's uh, interesting yeah. you say that though, because a lot of people talk about the romance of beer, which is, is a wonderful change in mindset. But at the same time, mm-hmm. making beer is much more like chefing isn't it because you've got a set of ingredients and you've got an outcome that you want to achieve with those ingredients um, whereas wine is a little bit more steering 
a, a natural process. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting um, in the fact that just about most of the guys that um, I was brewing with and guys that I was, have known throughout my career have all been um, of the same mind when it comes to food. And so a lot of the guys that I know, even who I stay in contact with that I've brewed with over the years, um, we still swap recipes. Um, we still share photos and talk about uh, the sourdough that we're making or um, something that we've done um, recently. Um, you know, I've got a big thing. I love, I actually love French food. Uh, and um, I, I, when I trained, I actually trained in French bistro. Um, which you know, it's it's all fat-based sauces and uh, having ingredients that you can make do four things in the kitchen, and you know, it's um, there's, there's not a lot of there's not a huge amount of finesse to it, but it's um, it's just uh, all about you know stocks and making great food, and and the big thing I really love Italian food as well, and um, I run the way that I I cook at home is that I actually run stocks. Um, I've always got stocks that I've that I've that I'm using. Um, I do a lot of prepare. I make pasta from scratch and um, raviolis and things like that. Um, I've got a I've got a pasta machine. Um, yeah. So yeah. And um, oddly enough, at the moment though, um, I've got I've got plenty of brewing equipment in my shed, but I'm not actually doing any um, brewing. But it's something that I, I really intend to get back into again. Um, when I seem to get a little bit more time. So what was it about, and we'll come back to you when you joined the Han Brewery, but what was it about making beer that was so addictive to you um, over just drinking it? Yes, um, you know, um, for me, um, it's always been able to perfect um, lager. Uh, there's something about making um, a really, really good lager, um, and you know I, I did it professionally. I've, you know, we've we've I've, I've made some, I've, I've been behind some great lagers. James Squire Pilsner, when we launched that in 2000, um, really was a beer that was out of the box. But prior to that, um, I did the, the research and all the development work around the new or the relaunch of Han Premium. Which was another um, another fantastic um, lager, but I go back to what I said before about the Matilda Bay Pills. Um, for me, when I first tasted that, that is what I wanted to make, and I, I spent a lot of time in my early home brewing um, trying to um, perfect it. And you know, it wasn't that easy because you've got to get some really you've got to get some really good temperature controls around your mashing, and you've got to have Good temperature control around fermentation and an ability to to store it for extended periods of time under refrigeration. So you've got to have you've got to be set up for it. And um, well, I actually um, in a lot of places in my life I've been I have been set up um, with refrigeration and proper sort of home brewing setups where um, we've made a lot of really really high quality um, home brew beer. So it's it's one of the things that's really driven me is that trying to get that the level of perfection you need to get around making um, you know making that perfect pills or um, you know trying to emulate a a German Helles or Munich Helles. So when you did the, the the food science course, that obviously wasn't geared to to brewing. There would have been very few brew, if any brewing courses available uh, for you to look at in those days. Yeah, it 
um, it had a very small portion in there um, around brewing. It had a small portion about cheese making. It had a small portion about wine making. It had stuff around putting food in the cans. I think most importantly about it was because it was applied science and the Sydney Technical College has, has been running um, food science um, and food technology courses for a long time. But a, a lot of it um, that I found most really important to have in that course was a lot of it was around how conveyors run, how bottling machines operate, um, how, to, how to select the right forklift for the right job, um, heat exchangers, pumps, a lot of the, a lot of the engineering things that you you really need to understand the difference. And that's simple stuff. You really need to understand the difference between um, centrifugal pumps and positive pumps, and um, you need to understand um, heat coefficients and, and a lot of things around heat exchange. And that was all the stuff. But, you know, you, you come away from that armed with all that knowledge, but, you know, you've got to go somewhere. And that's when I, I, I said previously that it's sort of like I, I entered, I, I at the age of 30, um, I entered into an apprenticeship because Chuck Arndt took, took us on and then we spent the next um, four years or how, how many years it was, even longer than that because Chuck and I worked together for a long time, um, learning learning the craft, you know, and we started out with having to, you know, your job was to wash and fill kegs and you would do that all day and um, or you'd have to polish up the, you'd have to polish up the copper in the brew house on when things were quiet I'd get sent out because I had cellar experience from my, my hotel days. I'd be sent out um, to do beer installations and beer line cleaning at, at restaurants where we were trying to put the beer on tap. And, um, you know, you'd have a lot of face time with publicans and, you know, putting beer on for them and, and all of that. So you just got it such a, a, a wide ranging look at um, not just the, the brewery, but the industry and also, um, you know, sitting around doing tastings um, and, and look at the beers that we'd made that week and go back and look over the beers that we were going to package and all the fault finding and developing your palate and, and all the stuff that you learn. And, um, yeah, I, I, I was really lucky to have landed where I did because it was just such a, a complete grounding. Um, the, the brewery itself was a, a 60 hectolitre um, German configuration. Um, it was probably the perfect brewery to to learn on, and and it continues today. That brewery. Um, there are a lot of people who are out and about in the industry in Australia today, and and, and around the world, who actually um, cut their teeth on that um, that brewing system, which is uh, that Chuck installed there at Camperdown. Tell us a little bit about that time at uh, at Hahn because I had a chat with Chuck recently and he was talking about the original Hahn Premium. Um, he did hope to establish that as a true pilsner, but he found that drinking you know, pallets in those days, a pilsner was a little bit challenging for a beer that needed you know, a, a reasonable volume throughput and uh, market uh, take up. Um, and so the, the, the Hahn Premium Lager was a little bit uh, of a step down from a pilsner. Um, but what was it like working in a brewery against the big guys in those early days? You know, you probably it wasn't even conceived as craft brewing then; it was boutique brewing uh, back in that day. Yeah, and um, it was it was an interesting time. Um, there weren't many of us around. Um, the pump house was operating at that time in Darling in Darling Harbour, 
um, and it was probably a little bit bigger than what Han was, I, I think, size-wise. But uh, we actually did quite a lot of work together. Um, we packaged beer for those guys at, at one point, and we used to sell we used to sell our Han Premium Lager through their bar. Um, finding taps was was quite difficult. Um, there were certain there were certain places um, where you know where there was an interest in in having a, a German style pills, and that's what it was in effect. What Chuck was making was like a, a North German pills, 100% malt. Um, it was hopped. It was actually hopped with New Zealand hops, um, but it was uh, it had late hopping in it. Um, it was a it was really a, a fantastic beer. But um, yeah, for the market at the time, it was probably a bit chewy. Um, we also produced a light beer, um, uh, Han Premium Light, um, which was a two and a half percent lager. Again, it had, it had different hopping um, than what the, the premium had. But um, yeah, trying to trying to get into the market um, wasn't easy. Um, uh, we had. Um, you know, we had we we had significant um, keg volumes at one point. I think we we're doing something like about 200 kegs a week across across the city, which was not a wasn't bad, but it wasn't enough um, for the company to um, pay down its debts because you know at the time interest rates were quite high, um, and so there was quite a large investment in that brewery as well when it was when it was put in, and so um, we ended up. Producing a beer which was more mainstream called Sydney Bitter, um, and it actually um, we sold a lot of it. Um, it was sort of like the twenty dollar carton um, type beer. It, it was a it was a really approachable, um, good sessionable um, lager, but unfortunately um, there was not much margin in it. So we were making we were operating around the clock, um, you know. You, you, you know, the brewery would start up at 10 o'clock on Sunday night and it wouldn't shut down again until 10 o'clock on Friday night. Um, and we would just brew and package and brew and package and brew and package continually. But um, there was a lot of volume going through the door, but unfortunately there wasn't a whole lot of money coming back in the other in the other direction. So things got things got tough and tough and, and tougher. And when you speak to Chuck... Uh... Uh, about those times, I, I get the feeling that that was a really formative period of time for him because interest rates went up to 17% in the recession that we had to have um, and the business sounded like it was viable. But as, as as you say, the bank wasn't able to be repaid with those interest rates and so they effectively forced a sale, is, is my understanding. Yeah, it went into, um, it went into voluntary receivership and uh, that was actually quite big news at the time, Um you know, it made all the it made all the major news stories. Um, it made the papers. Um, we had reporters and film crews crawling over the joint because it had actually become fairly well established, and the the, the sort of the boutique business um, was actually beginning to flourish. Um, and there were, you know, it looked like it was going to uh, be something that um, would continue to grow. And um, when it when it didn't. Um, it was a bit of a shockwave because um, uh, it, it sort of, it, I guess it sort of looked again as if like the big guys um, were trying to keep the small guys out. And, you know, that's always that's always a newsworthy story. 
And so we went into receivership and, you know, we worked pretty hard during that time to try and trade out. Um, but in the end, it just, it just um, became um, just a, a, you know, a post too far for us to get to. So we ended up um, being sold and, and, and uh, Tui's um, actually were the, were the purchases. So, and a lot of things changed from that point on. Mm. But it, it's in terms of how formative it was for Chuck's uh, mindset, um, and I know you probably can't comment too much on his thinking, but it, it was Chuck um, in a conversation about the Han uh, Brewing and looking at modern craft brewing uh, that uses terms like it's a unit cost business and you really have to look at the profit that you're making on every beer and you need volume and you know hearing you describe that I can understand how that mindset um, sort of w- would have come about when you sound how hard you're working and how much beer you're putting out and still not able to keep the business open you know I couldn't tell you how hard we were working and it was it was it was incredible because everyone Everyone who was working there at the time really pulled together and tried everything we possibly could um, to to get us through that point. Um, but it, you know, it, it, I think the the big thing um, for Chuck was that he he came out of it at the other end. Um, luckily for him, um, he got to keep his house, so I guess that was that was a, a bonus for him because you know he actually had everything on the line. You know, he had everything, everything that he had, he threw at that. Um, and he was, I think he was quite fortunate as well, is that he had a lot of people around him, myself um, and others, my brother who was working there still, and, and a really um, great crew of people um, who continued to rally to ensure that we would at, um, try and keep at, at the best we could to try and keep it up and running. So we were out doing promotions and working on Saturday mornings, um, doing bottle shop tastings, and um, you know there was all sorts, all manner of things um, that we were turning up at to try and uh, try and keep everything afloat. But in the end, it, it just um, it just wasn't to be. But I, I think it's um, I think everybody I think everybody who was involved learned quite a lot about um, what it was, what it means to run a small business, but not just a small business, but a small brewing business because um, they're fairly unique in, um, in, in, how, in what you need to do to, to operate one. And I guess in those days it was only wholesale. You didn't have brewery tap rooms. You didn't have your own retail component uh, that smaller breweries have now. No, and um, we were sort of uh, into the likes of um, uh, Liquorland, um, you know, uh, one of the one of the partners who had come into the business um, was actually um, the guy who, who established Liquorland, and so um, we were. You know, we we actually had um, reasonable distribution um, set up. We'd worked really hard on distribution, especially at tap. Uh, there was a lot of work had gone into um, the tap. You know, like meet the brewer nights. We used to um, we used to be out and about in Sydney all the time, and, and it was quite funny because um, it, it, there was a really um, uh, a following for for independent uh, beers, and there were certain pubs in Sydney that were doing um, specialty beers. You know, and not just um, not just having hard premium on tap. But um, Bass was coming in at the time as well from from the UK, and there were you know there were places where you could go 
and 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 um, there were people around who were following it, but uh, unfortunately, it, the the movement just wasn't big enough um, to support the volume of beer that was required. Uh, and we were making a lot of beer. At, at that that brewery was sized to produce around three million litres a year, and we were really running it right up to that to that point. But um, yeah, it's um, we were putting a lot of beer out, but um, unfortunately, the, we just weren't banking enough. To, to cover all the costs plus um, plus pay down the um, down the line. So, so once you became part of the Tui stable, what happened to the to the malt well to, to the Han Brewing team? Um, you know, it was a it was a very very funny um, period of time because um, you know we were all we were all very very uh, staunchly independent um, and had had come up against um, the big boys. Um, part of the part of the reason that I actually got into into brewing or was driven was really around the whole independence and and um, and to try and make better beer than what the big guys were making. Um, not that I had any real set against them. It's just that I didn't really think that much of their beers, um, and that the whole idea was to try and make better beer, and and that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to make better beer, and so all of a sudden, being part of um, this big brewing company. Um, it didn't sit well with some. Um, it, it certainly didn't sit well with my brother Matt. He he left. He he didn't want to work for them, um, and so he he went off. And there was a time when he and I were going to go into consultancy. Um, we always we always really wanted to start our own brewery, but we just um, we could see what Hart had just been through, um, and we didn't know where we were ever going to be able to get the level of money required to to establish a, a, a brewery. So. We looked at other we looked at other options, and I was still working at the Hahn Brewery, and um, you know there were things there were things happening within that the company under Tui's um, that I started to find really quite interesting. Um, we were doing a lot of product development work. Um, I was being included in um, in, in more of the, the broader um, scheme of things, and I actually had um, uh, a lady who was the uh, valve. Val Flint, who was the um, head brewer, she'd been made head brewer at um, at a point, and um, she pretty much said to me that what I should do is probably um, uh, sort of get my head out of my ass a bit and realise that you know, the company that I was working for is not a bad bunch, uh, isn't a bad company to work for, and maybe you should get on board. And you know, um, one thing led to another, and I, I sort of lost my. Um, uh, I, I lost my bolshie uh, approach towards the my 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 new owners or my new boss, <laughs> and um, and got on board and um, and quite rapidly found out that they were a good bunch of guys to work for, um, and they could see they could see stuff in me that I probably hadn't seen in myself, um, and so I, I got onto a, a path of um, you know development, and I ended up. Um, I ended up pretty much running the Han Brewery as um, a development brewery. Um, we were doing lots of things. You know, it's, um, you hear a lot of talk these days around seltzers and, um, you know, drinks being produced by craft breweries in the US now, which are sort of like a, a, a harping back to the Alcopop sort of days. Um, Sub-Zero had been a big product for CUB at the time. Um, they got under our guard because we had been uh, doing some product development work on a product called Zima, which was coming out of cores in the US, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a malt based um, 
seltzer, you know, grapefruit soda, <laughs> um, alcoholic soda. And um, but Sub Zero beat us, beat us to the market, and they and they got a big a big chunk of that market with that product. But yeah, we were doing other things. Um, we we're producing we we're producing specialty beers, seasonal beers, Christmas beers. Um, we we're doing a lot of development work, scaling up from the pilot plant at, at to is at Lidcombe. Um, we worked on products like Han Ice. Um, there were some other products, but um, eventually we relaunched Han Premium. And again, um, we had an opportunity to crank the the old brewery back up to full capacity, and we and we did. We took we took it from almost uh, a stagnating development plant um, back up to a fully operational um, brewery, running twenty four seven, producing um, producing Han Premium, which was the new Han Premium. Um, it had been um, gone through a lot of market research and we had gone into a green bottle, a wasted embossed green bottle. Um, it was the first beer to have pressure sensitive labeling. Um, we bought a pressure sensitive label in from the U S and, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff around, um, the innovation on that product. Um, it was, it was, a, 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 a it was a serious premium lager and it actually probably the first time, um, anyone had put something into the market that was going to give um, both Crown and, at the time, Cascade uh, Premium a nudge. And it certainly did. It became a, it became a big deal um, very quickly. So that product then was shifted to, to, um, to Tui's um, and produced out at Tui's. Um, uh, I went with that product um, for six months. I was out there. Actually, not on the brewing side of the business, but on the packaging side, because there was a lot involved in packaging that product. And then um, Chuck rang me up and said, uh, "Come and see me. Um, I've got an idea about um, getting malt shovel the Han Brewery back and um, and form formulating a new um, business model around the malt shovel and the James Squire. And, um, so I went back and we sat down and we talked through what the plan was going to be. And he asked me if I wanted to come back and be the head brewer. And, um, I had to go back to my boss at, at Tui's who was same company, but, I, and say, look, um, you know, um, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm on track to go somewhere else here, but I'm, I really want to get back and do what I, I, I got into the business to do. And that was to, be operating at that level and um, and to work with Chuck again for me uh, was just a, another brilliant opportunity and um, and that's what happened. I went back and we we started the we started the malt shovel. So for all of uh, the intellectual interest that you had in making some of these malt alternative uh, beverages, there was still a lure of malt water hops and yeast to create beer that dragged you back. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Um, I look at a lot of those products, even some of the beers today, um, you know, sours and ghosts and, um, you know, beers that are made out of um, breakfast cereals and, you know, all the things. And I, I, think, I think they're a lot of fun and, and I, I love the level of interest that they, that they bring and, um, and I love the fact that people love to make them and drink them. But um, I'm, I really am still... That uh, four ingredient man, you know, and um, and you know, being able to make um, tradi- traditional styles using the you know malt hops, water, and yeast, and um, just being able to manipulate those four ingredients to create the 
the, the different things that you can make from them. Um, you know, yeah, it's still, and it still is an allure for me because um, although I've finished what I've been doing um, in the hop industry, um, I don't think I'll, I don't think I'll ever really be lost to the brewing industry. This episode of Beer is a Conversation is brought to you by Unleashed Software. Unleashed is more than inventory management software for brewers. It's a system that runs your whole business operations and gives you an unfair advantage. With Unleashed, you can create custom recipes, effortlessly track your cereal and batch numbers, and understand your stock levels at all times at every location. Learn how Unleashed can help you run and grow your brewery at unleashedsoftware.com forward slash brew. Do you think there's a risk that we sound, because <laughs> this is a conversation that I have quite a lot, and uh, I had it recently with Phil Sexton t- talking about, uh, you know, Phil actually said that the craft of brewing is to make beautiful things out of those four ingredients. And whilst you're very similar to what you said, that there's a lot of fun in some of these other beers, the craft of brewing is making great beer. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 is, is there a risk that we sound like we're, sort of out of our out of the present or you know just sort of not relevant talking about that or do you think that we're on a bit of a cycle that will come back you know so so most beer drinkers will come back to the elegance of four ingredients yeah i don't know about coming back um i don't really i don't i don't really think it's ever gone that i don't think we've gone that far away from it to tell you the truth um still some of the the, the biggest beer sales um, internationally in, in, in the space we're in um, are IPAs and the, the majority of IPAs that are made um, still really focus in on what you can do um, with those four ingredients. I think one of the biggest changes that we've seen um, in recent times has been a move away from bittering hops um, or, or, or where hops are used in the process. So um, I did some tasting notes yesterday for, um, for for some beers at the at a local brewery here, and um, I was interested to to note on a number of them was um, how hoppy the the flavour and the aroma was, but there was there was very very little um, lingering hop bitterness in there, and 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 it's uh, the fact is that a lot of the hops that were being added to these beers are actually being added much later in the um, in the process, and in some instances, all of it at the very end, and and even larger volumes again in in fermentation. So, while we're still using the same ingredients, um, the way they're being used is 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 different, and it's it's part of the the big phenomenon now, which is with the um, the New England IPA, um, w- with this ability to sort of uh, manipulate. Um, the ingredients, and, and not necessarily just be uh, 100% barley malt, but you know, using other using other grains, but it's producing another style. And and you know, I know purist brewers who look at the the, the juices and and don't like them um, for whatever reason. But uh, you know, I find I find them that if they're well executed, um, they're absolutely delicious. And um, you know, and that's something which is it's. It's something which is new and innovative, which is which has come out of those four ingredients, basically. Do you think those beers are a craft response to the same 
challenge that big brewers have found for the last 20 or 30 years. And that is, you know, as, as a society, we are increasingly um, avoiding the, the, the bitter flavors of food. And so we've seen mainstream lagers become less and less bitter and the, you know, the, the growth of the contemporary lagers like Great Northern, um, even Corona, that are very low bitterness. Um, do, do you think that some of these uh, hop aroma-driven beers with low bitterness are playing into that same trend, but just in a, in a different segment? Yeah. Um, I, I, to tell you the truth, I don't really know. Um, if someone had told me um, that the the hazy um, that we see today was going to be the phenomenon that's become in the U.S. in particular, I, I, a few years ago, I probably wouldn't have I probably wouldn't have seen it or, or, or thought that it was possible. But it certainly happened. Um, I know that um, uh, there was a time, and it's not that long ago, when trying to even sell hazy beer um, was a, was a struggle. Um, and and, uh, and, I, and an example is um, when uh, we set up the James Squire Brew House in the Portland Hotel in uh, in Melbourne. Um, when we first started down there, it was it wasn't a James Squire Brew House. We opened it as what was called the Melbourne Ale House. Um, Tui's had bought a whole stack of pubs down in Melbourne, and it was part of the part of how they were going to attack the market down there and try and break. Um, the hold that um, Carlton had, but um, so we thought, well, we'll put this brewery into this, um, but you know, in, into this pub. But we didn't have any filtration equipment or anything, and so we were putting up beers um, that we were finding um, and getting some settling, and 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 but um, putting putting uh, yeasty beer up in in front of people um, at that point um, was still um, not being met. All that well by the by the general public, um, and, and and that wasn't you know we're only talking two uh, thousand so um, at that point um, you know a, a lot of people um, probably would never have even considered drinking a Cooper's um, for the very fact that it, it had a yeast in it, um, and and now um, people are falling over themselves to get to the to the next. The next juicy, and although it's not yeast which is creating this haze, it's still a hazy. It's still a hazy product. Mm. Um, so yeah, things things can change, um, and, and you know, it's, it's not that long ago, is it, when you think about it, that you couldn't sell a hazy beer, and now um, look at it. But and, and I guess how, how much of that is the love of haze is almost a reaction against how anodyne and clear. Um, beers became and you know you, you had beers like Cooper's Sparkling that was quite hazy by comparison but you know mm-hmm. people start saying well if a little haze is good a lot of haze is better and just start <laughs> progressing down that that path as long as uh, in those styles as long as the haze is actually coming from protein <laughs> I, I was in a I was in a bar in uh, in Portland in Oregon last year and I'm sitting there and I was, I, I had ordered one of these beers and I was watching the yeast flocculate out of it into the bottom of the glass while it was sitting on the counter. And, um, I had to turn it in and say, you know, um, I, I really don't want to drink this because what it really was, was just a, it, it, it just looked to me as if it was a, a sample that had been taken straight out of, out of a fermenter. Um, so you don't really want that. But as I say, when, it, when that style, that hazy is well executed, um, and, and, and you get it, um, 
I think the big problem with with that with that beer at the moment is that there are people trying to interpretate the style who don't actually know the style, and so they're they're working on you know what they've been told or what they've heard or or what they've seen rather than um, having a number of uh, good examples to work from and say right well, this is this is um, this is what this beer should be. But could they inadvertently come up with something just from experimenting based on hearsay? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, and, and you know, I had a hazy the other day that wasn't hazy and um, it, it tasted, it, it had everything about it um, that a hazy would have, but it didn't have any haze. And I said, well, what happened? And they said, well, we don't know. It just went clear. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> well, well, I don't know. It had everything in there. They thought that they should have had enough to get the, the haze in it, but it, you know, it didn't work for them. So well, back to the drawing board on that. Yeah. Well, speaking of back to the drawing board, let's get back to uh, Chuck Hahn tapping you on the shoulder. It would have been around about 1998 uh, when he'd yep. convinced uh, Lion. Was it Lion in 1988? It probably was. It was probably still uh, Castlemaine Tui's. Um, no, it was, um, at that point it was Lion. It was um, the guy who, Yeah, the guy and the guy who was the... Um, the chief exec at the time, a guy by the name of Gordon Cairns, um, Chuck had gone to him and said, um, with this with this idea about, you know, rather than rather than buying a brand, why don't we develop our own? And um, and it was, you know, I, I think from a from the company um, perspective, they um, they sort of there was a lot of uh, doubt amongst certain um, elements within the business that you could do that. Um, but, uh, what happened was, um, they said, yeah, you can do it, but, um, you've got to, you've got to be able to prove that you can do it and stand alone. So when we, st- when we started, although we were, um, the capital to to get the brewery up and running again and, and, and get the branding and everything done, um, did come, um, from the company, the ongoing had to be that we had to actually um, stand alone and do it, and and that meant that we had to compete in the market against our own guys. So um, we were actually having our we we would establish a tap, and we actually could have the tap knocked off by one of our own uh, one someone within the company. So a, a, a Tui's rep could come in and 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 actually take the James Squire tap off and put something else in its place. Um, I know it sounds nutty, but um, we didn't even have distribution. We had to build our own distribution, and um, and and we started out. And uh, for the first two years, um, it I, I for James Squire for the first two years, it was a a real slog. There was myself, um, Chuck, and Tony Johansson was the the marketing guy, and um, and we were out there um, in the market, and, and at the same time. Um, you know, there was um, little creatures came along in 2000, and um, and and so there were there were others out there, but um, we were really up against it. And in the end, um, I, I think Chuck just uh, went to the company and said, you know, we're knocking ourselves out here, and we think that um, if we had a, a little bit of a hand, we could probably make some some serious inroads into the market and uh, he convinced them to take on distribution and the moment we got um line to start distributing for us um we could put kegs of amber ale into tasmania and and, and into uh, victoria and south australia and queensland and um yeah everything changed 
from that point on. And, and as we talk, I'm looking at a photo of uh, a much younger you uh, standing beside Chuck Khan and a very young-looking Rob Freshwater um, raising yeah. glasses of, and, and I'll put this in the show notes, but raising glasses of amber ale. And I think that in itself says how different the industry is, that you wouldn't see a brewery launching with a beer like amber ale these days. No, and um, it, it, it really was um, a game-changer, but it, 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 it hadn't actually, it wasn't an unproven um, idea because... Um, New Belgium Brewing in this in the states had produced um, Fat Tire on that same on that same platform, and um, a lot about how we packaged it, and um, you know the branding was different, but a lot about it was uh, was similar, and um, and and the same thing happened for um, for New Belgium with that product as well. You know, it sort of uh, it found it it found it's a niche. Um, it I think what happened with it was that a lot of people looked at the colour and and thought, wow, I don't really think I'm going to like that. But when they tasted it, um, it was there was a fair bit of malt sweetness in there. It was beautifully balanced and it had um, you know, some nice citrusy notes as well. So, um, yeah, it was just um, – it, it wasn't for everybody, but it, it certainly um, changed – it certainly changed the way um, people were drinking beer in pubs in Sydney, and not just in Sydney, but um, – in Melbourne, uh, we, we got a, a good foothold in Melbourne with that product, and uh, we just started turning up at places, and um, people were drinking it. So it, it, it's, it sort of did change a lot of things in the in the beer scene when it came out. Now, tell me this because again, it was one of the you know the very early foundation beers in my experience. When you go back eighteen years. Uh, it was one of the first beers I wrote about um, when I first got into writing about beer, and I remember it being an incredibly complex. And I remember describing it as almost having it a, sh- a shellac note because the, the the malt was complex and full. Is the beer the same, you know, twenty years on that it was when it started, or has it gone chasing that uh, palate of a different sort of consumer? Yeah, I I can tell you that I haven't had one for quite some time. Um, so I'm not really sure where it is at the moment, but even when even when we were producing it, um, it was it evolved it, it evolved as we were making it because there were things that um, I, I tell you something that um, that happened and that was that it, it had a uh, it had a fair bit of crystal malt in it, and um, and, and what happens what happens with crystal is it's, it's great in uh, in draft. But when we wanted to go into pack, the moment you start to get a bit of age or oxidation on crystal, you, you start to develop um, some some less than pleasant sort of toffee notes that you, you may not necessarily want in the beer. So it starts to get a bit flabby. So what we did was um, we went to Joe White Maltings and we said, what we want to do is we want to try and keep the color, but we want to try and reduce the amount of crystal that we're using. And we came up with um, a, a nail malt, so which was a, a derivative of a pale malt. So we had higher colour in the in the base malt, which meant that we could reduce the amount of crystal. Um, and when we did that, we started getting much better flavour stability in the pack. And so, you know, um, it, it, it changed it, it changed the characteristics of the product, um, but it slowly evolved. So, and I would only assume that as as the years um, have gone on, um, you know, most beers go through that. 
Um, I, I quite often hear people um, say to me that, oh, yeah, this beer doesn't taste like it used to taste, but, you know, can you actually can you actually remember what something tasted like? And I certainly don't back myself, and that's what I was asking. And, I, you know, you, you have a whole palate shift as your uh, range of beers um, changes, which is uh, one of the reasons I was hoping to get the, a little bit of an inside word on whether it had or not. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I, what I do know is that um, that 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 we sort of continued to um, to to um, to tinker with it um, and others that were re- that were released um, as as time went on because um, it's just it's just the nature of things, really. So, how long were you with uh, the the malt shovel brewery as it was renamed? Um, I was there for eight years. I started in '98, uh, and um, I left in. I started with New Zealand hops in 2006. So, so what led that change? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's an interesting. Uh, there's, you know, there's there's a lot to it, um, uh, but it in the end it, it it came down to I had been I had been the chief judge at the beer awards here in um, New Zealand. I, I started judging in New Zealand in '98 with the first. New Zealand Beer Awards, and then um, I ended up uh, towards the end. I became the the chief judge, and I used to come over here, and um, and then we'd do the beer judging. And then I'd take a week on. Um, my wife's um, a New Zealander, and so uh, she'd come over, um, and we'd go and have a, a bit of a holiday tacked on to the end of the beer awards. And we just decided that. Um, when we came here, we'd found somewhere that we really wanted to live, um, but we couldn't figure out how we were going to get here other than retire here. So, And then the, the prospect of um, retiring here um, looked good, but one day I was looking through a trade magazine and there was an advert for the job that, I've, that I took um, advertised and um, with New Zealand Hops. And I went home and I, I, I just said to Tracy, I said, um, I said, you know, uh, New Zealand Hops is advertising for somebody. And she said, apply. And so I, I applied and went through the interview process. Um, I, I had to come back. And when I, I did get it in the end, I, when I got the job, I had to come back and tell Chuck um, that I was going. And then um, he said, well, you know, he wished me well, of course. Um, but uh, I had to sort of um, establish or, or figure out how we were going to structure the business without me there because at the time um, I was involved, myself and um, Michael Comerton were involved in running the brew houses. Um, we had uh, Rob Freshwater was, was um, sort of running um, the operations side of the business at um, Malt Shovel and there was a whole heap of other stuff that was going on. Um, uh, we'd been up and had been looking to put a brewery into the the Clare Valley as well, um, and that that was a project that was on that was on the go at, at the time. So there was a lot of things on, and so I had to figure out. Um, and, and, and Chuck just kept wanting to hang on to me and hang on to me. And in the end, I just said to him, "Look, Chuck, I have to go." And so, um, yeah, <laughs> you weren't responsible I, I guess, for I, that uh, brewery in the Clare Valley uh, using Nelson Sylvian Sov- hops, by any chance, were you? Yeah, well, um, we did we did that. Um, the Napstein lager, the, the the very first Napstein lager that was produced was actually produced using 100% Nelson Sovereign, and it was um, we did all the trial work at the brew house in um, in uh, Melbourne at the Portland. 
So that's where that's where we developed that product there, and then um, uh, yeah. So yeah, that was sort of like the last project I was on before I left. With your love of brewing and uh, the, the the technical elements and creating beers, what was it like stepping into uh, what, what I would imagine was a bit more of a, a, a corporate role um, as head of New Zealand Hops? You know, my time with Lion um, was an, an incredible learning experience. Those guys um, taught me so much. Um, you couldn't you couldn't learn um, what I learned about business. Um, I don't think any other way than um, than what I did. So I was actually quite prepared to go into it because I had a very very good understanding of 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 how a business should run. Um, and I, I you know um, so I had that I had that side of it. The the thing that I didn't have was that um, I actually thought I knew a thing or two about hops before I got here, and then pretty quickly realized that I didn't know very much about hops at all. I certainly didn't know anything about um, the hop industry or how how hops work. Um, and, and here I was stepping into, which was a funny situation. Here's an Australian coming into a New Zealand um, company um, and to, to take over um, the running of, of a farming cooperative. Um, you know, I grew up in Sydney. Um, I've always had a, I've always had a thing for, for living. I've always wanted to live rurally, but um, I, I'm, 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 I'm a city. I was a city kid that um, turned up in a, um, a rural town, and um, and I had to. And, and plus, once I was here, um, one of the reasons we came was because my daughter was starting school as well, and uh, we wanted her to start school um, here. So we we packed up everything we owned into a forty foot container and um, and left Sydney and, and arrived here and um, you know I had to make it work. There was there was <laughs> there was nothing there was nothing else I was going to be able to do. But but you also would have entered the business at an incredibly dynamic time. And uh, as you said, you didn't know uh, as much about hops as you thought you did. But at the same time, as an industry we didn't know uh, as much about hops and then brewers kept pushing the limits of what they wanted hops to do in a, in a lot of ways. And so you've, you've walked into uh, a New Zealand hop cooperative um, as their head at an incredibly, uh, you know, dynamic time. Yeah, the, the, I, I guess um, at that point though, uh, New Zealand hops were, um, were pretty much... Um, from an export perspective anyway, uh, which was 90% of their business was commodity. So we were selling, um, we were selling um, hops as alpha acid extract into companies like Heineken, um, Guinness were two major customers. Um, uh, Molson, Coors uh, in the States was probably the biggest customer. And um, the idea that we could um, uh, sell hops into the U.S. craft market um, wasn't something that was really working uh, working for us. Um, we couldn't even sell a hop basically in the U.S. We had hops up there on um, into the craft market. We had hops up there um, on consignment um, with with companies that weren't necessarily um, uh, that um, interested um, to sell hops for us because they had their own hops to sell. And so we had to sort of uh, not only did we have to create 
um, or, or rebrand ourselves to get into that market. But we had to figure out a way to get into that market as well. And then also had to convince the growers that that's the direction that the company needed to take. Because we, we as commodity, uh, we were actually price takers, um, not price makers. And um, we needed to create um, a differentiation and a, a niche and, and a niche product and, and branding, and um, it didn't just happen overnight. It took from I got here in 2006, and I would say that um, we we changed the we we had changed the model, but it took us up to probably 2011 to to sort of crack our way into the to actually say yes, we've cracked our way into the U.S. craft market. And what created that change? Well, it certainly changed the variety mix in a hurry. Um, well, I won't say in a hurry, but it certainly changed the variety mix because um, we had contracts with um, with some some big companies um, to for significant large volumes of hops. But very risky business model because you've got a, a large proportion of your um, crop is completely contracted to just a handful of customers, and um, at any point. If one of those customers were to say, "Well, we're not going to take these hops anymore," you'd find yourself with um, a, a large volume of hops um, unsold. So, yeah, that sort of that's part of the business had to be de-risked, and the best way to do that is to expand your customer base. Um, but as I said, we were struggling to get into the US. So, what what we did was we we actually found a way in through um, homebrew. Um, I and met a guy who was involved in in an op- as operations manager um, with a company called Brewcraft USA, which was a New Zealand-owned company. And um, we went up there and put hops on consignment into the homebrew market. And um, and it, it, I went up there and talked to homebrew clubs, and and we went and saw homebrew shops and and got um, and got New Zealand hops into the market up there. Um, at the same time, we changed some of the names because they had, um, you know, like one of the big varieties we grow currently is called Motueka. Um, its previous name was Bisarts, and one of our one of our agents in Europe said, um, you know, you're probably not going to do that well trying to sell a Sarts hop into Europe. Um, you, you should call it something different. So um, we did. We, we went through and we renamed some of the varieties to give them local place names, um, which was a good strategy at the time. And um, and so we got into the craft, into the homebrew market into the states. And of course, um, I was fully aware that if we were to start to become popular in homebrew, then it wouldn't take long before it would flow on. And um, one thing led to another, and that was in 2008. And by 2010, we had other distributors in the U.S. and other brewers in the U.S. coming to us saying, we want to buy your hops. And it turned out that the reason it happened was because a lot of those home brewers that were using them had actually progressed into commercial brewing and had started breweries and were using um, New Zealand hops. And they, they, wanted to, they wanted to continue to purchase them. So it sort of just all boiled up. Um, out of that until a point um, up until in recent times where we've really struggled to meet anywhere near the demand there has been for certain varieties. That's a a fairly long-term sales strategy though, isn't it? Uh, So targeting home brewers, hoping that there'll be sort of a demand-led drive for for beer and then having that secondary 
flowing of the homebrewers going pro. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, w- was that an intended plan or was it just a, like a happy uh, accident or a seren- serendipitous uh, result? I had thought that that would work. Um, it was it, it was um, it was actually a mapped out strategy. Um, the, the the beauty of it was um, where we were going into was into um, the warehouse was in Portland in Oregon, um, and there was uh, you know there's just a massive amount of activity and chatter around there of anything that was new, and and I knew that once we started some chatter, because you know the hops speak for themselves. Um, they are really quite extraordinary, and they are different. Um, they are completely different offering than anything you'll get anywhere else, and that's what we had to. That's what we had to sell. And the best way to, to get the chatter and to get that up and, and people talking about it was to actually, um, was to, to hit a market like that. And um, it didn't take long. We had homebrew shops on the east coast um, taking them. Um, and then the moment the moment we had one or two of the bigger distributors take an interest, um, we knew then that we would be able to start writing contracts. And that's all you really need to get some forward contracts in place, um, get your pricing set, get get people interested. And once it and once it, it all started, it was just it just all snowballed then. And you know, a lot of people said, "Well, that was lucky." And I said, "Well, you know, a lot of the luck um, we made ourselves." So um, yeah. But it's been it has actually been um, quite a successful um, story for the hop industry here. And, um, and what has that meant for the New Zealand brewing scene and the the, the New Zealand hop growing scene? Up until fairly recently, um, the the industry was just ticking along. Um, there wasn't a huge amount of growth, um, but in a in a very short period of time, um, the, the industry itself has developed it's had new entrants come in it's not just the cooperative anymore there's um there's other there's overseas investment has come in other investment companies have come in and and um and and other private equity guys have come in so there's um there's a whole lot more uh, there's been a whole lot more money has been um, sunk into the industry um, a whole lot more land has been converted to hops um a lot of equipment has been has been imported picking and harvesting there's been a it's it's been um a massive um, increase, so it's 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 almost doubled in size in the last four years. What are the exciting uh, development? What are the developments that we should look forward to in New Zealand hops over the coming years? Uh, we, we've seen a rapid increase in you know, uh, breeding programs, for example. What's what are the ex- uh, the exciting hops that are coming out of those? Well, the you know the, the whole thing has always been um, has always been based in in the breeding program. Um, and so it's almost in, it's almost impossible to to be in this business and and not have and not have a breeding program. Um, and so there will be there are new varieties coming down the the pipeline. One of the things we did with the breeding program um, in our in our last round um, of the program was we installed a um, we installed a, a small brewery um, in in the research station itself. So. What used to happen was that um, you would you would breed hops and and you would look at agronomics and you, there was a lot of things that you would sort of be, be studying before you actually made beer with them. Um, and what we did was we fast tracked that we would grow seedlings and we still do. Um, the program still does um, grow seedlings and brew beer with the seedlings immediately. So 
if, and then put them through sensory. And if, if things stand out at that point, then you can start looking at other things. But what it does is it cuts it, it cuts time out of it because a variety like um, Nelson Sovin um, was almost 20 years in the development. Um, and what you want to do is you, you wanted to get your breeding program down or your breeding um, lines down to, to you know, 10 to 12 years would be would be really good. Um, and you can do that if you're if you're already convinced that that, that the that the hops themselves um, have that special thing that you're looking for um, very early in the stage, knowing that you, what you're producing has got something that brewers want early early in the process, um, and then you can have a look to see um, what its picking window is and what the agronomics are like and, and all the other things that you have to look for um, in a breeding program. But you're starting. You're starting with a view that that's already it's already going to be something that you're going to be able to make some pretty interesting beer with or some great beers with. At least on the surface, there are certain parallels between Nelson Sovin and Galaxy in terms of having uh, a breakthrough rock star hop that creates a lot of noise and attention and focus for what else is happening. Is that a a, a, a fair observation? Yeah, and um, it's interesting the the parallels. Um, are very much the same because both were initially bred to be um, alpha varieties. So it wasn't it wasn't until people started brewing with them. And I know that when um, when people first started brewing with Nelson Sovin, um, there was a lot of people just didn't like it because it was just too it was just too different. Um, and so and that was back in say 2000. So it's it's sort of only just hit its straps in the market. Probably around about 2014, 2015, when people started to really stand up and take note, and and Galaxy was very much the same. It was produced as a an, an alpha variety in the breeding program, and it wasn't until they started brewing with it and, and they realised that it had this incredible um, flavour and aroma um, profile characteristics, um, and has now become um, you know uh, part of a of a whole new brand, a whole new beer style. Um, so. It's been pretty pretty amazing. Looking at uh, Doug Donnellan has stepped back from uh, New Zealand hops. What's uh, what's next for Doug Donnellan? Um, well, at the moment, um, I'm going to take a break for a while and see um, what retirement feels like. <laughs> um, Will you break out the brew kit? I'm certainly going to break out my home brew kit. That's um, that's one of the things I'm going to do. Um, there's lots of things that um, I, I like to do along those lines. Though um, I like I like to make cider. Um, I've got a bit of a thing for wine as well. So hopefully, um, as as my retirement progresses, um, I'll be able to turn my hand to more and more, um, you know, making making my own beer and wine and, and things. I'll probably do some cheese as well. Um, I'm, I'm, I hope to keep my hand in. Um, as also professionally, but um, I'm not. I, I, I don't have any real um, wish to get back into the hurly burly of um, of corporate management um, and uh, and travel. I, I've, over the last twelve, um, almost thirteen years, um, I've done a lot of travel. I've been away from home from three to four months in total every year. Um, and although it's been great, I've got to go to some great places and, and, and I, I enjoy it. Um, it loses its gloss quite a bit. Um, and I just really want to spend some time around my house and 
do some do some restoration work around it. Um, I like cars and motorbikes, so I've got um, I've got some ideas around some things that I want to do there. Um, yeah, fish. I live on a beach, so um, I've got access to I've got access to um, to fishing anytime I want to do that. So I just wanted I just wanted um, I, I I spoke with um, you, you would know Bill Taylor. Mm, I have. From, yeah. Okay. So I was speaking to Bill um, recently because I was up in I was up judging um, in Japan at um, the International Beer Cup, and Bill was there judging as well. And um, he described that uh, when he when he first um, left Lion, that um, it was uh, a recalibration. So that's what that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to calibrate um, or recalibrate and um, and have a look at some things. But um, yeah, I'm, I have to keep my hand in. Um, somewhere, um, even I could be, in, I could come back and be involved in hops again, um, but, or even uh, in brewing. But um, I'm, I'm certainly um, want to take a more um, relaxed approach um, to it all. A lot of our listeners are aspiring brewers. They uh, they, they love beer. They love the industry. They've got dreams of opening a brewery. If we, we could take your thirty odd years of experience. What advice would you give to somebody who is thinking of getting into the industry or starting up a brewery? Listen, listen to other people. It's everything. You know, you, you're not born with with all this knowledge that you that you accumulate over the time. It's, it all comes it all comes handed down from somebody else, or you pick it up from somebody. Most of it comes from somebody else. And um, uh, one of the things that um, I really love doing is I love to uh, judge beer, and I've been a member of um, on, on juries at the World Beer Cup, um, and to sit around a table with other brewing people or experts um, in their field on on different beer styles, and there's uh, you can you can share a lot of your own information, but one of the things one of the great things is to listen to what other people have have got and and know and and um, you, you know, uh, um, yeah, listening's, listening's a, a, a skill that, um, I certainly didn't have when I was younger. Um, but it's something that, it, um, it's something that you can actually hone and develop and, uh, yeah, I've become a much better listener. And I, I think the sooner that people, um, learn to hone that skill, um, the more successful they're going to be in, 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 in lots of different things, not just in, not just in brewing, but, uh, in business and in life. Oh, well, Doug Donnellan, that's as good a place as any to leave it. I could uh, chat for a whole lot more. Maybe we'll get you on uh, again very soon to pick up some of the, uh, the the other threads you've talked about. But for this conversation, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, congratulations on a on a terrific career, and thank you very much for this wonderful conversation. No, it was great talking to you, Matt. Thanks for, thanks for reaching out and, um, and asking me to come on anyway. That was great. And that was Doug Donnellan. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener, And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover. 
because beer is a conversation.